0: Smack People talk. thought they were gonna hear a conversation about the war below, but surprise, we have bait and switched them. Now we're going to be talking about the best state in the nation.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. Well, we really are super excited to have you on here. The whole team was like really happy when you agreed to come on. And I know we've got a bunch of folks joining us today who are equally excited. So with that, I, I probably don't have to intro you to all of our all of our guests that are joining us, but Ernest is a senior correspondent for Reuters, covering the green energy transition and the minerals that undergird it. He previously covered the U.S. shale oil revolution, politics and the environment, and held roles at the Associated Press and the Bangor Daily News. A native of Maine, as everyone's heard us chit-chatting about, he is a graduate of the University of Maine and Columbia Journalism School. So, welcome again. Um, really Good to excited to be with you. There, Awesome. All right. So for those of you who haven't read the book yet or haven't started, I'm just going to hold it up and I will say like, I, I took out all my post-it notes, but I don't know that I've (laughs) underlined (laughs) any book so much since college. First (laughs) of all, I kept saying like, I've got to put this on LinkedIn. Um, but can you give folks who maybe haven't read it yet, uh, a little bit about what drew you to the topic? What, what compelled you to write this?
0: Sure. So the the book is The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. And it builds off of my day job, which is at Reuters, where I've been covering the critical mineral space for the past six years. And I primarily focused on North America, but other projects across the world. And the more that I reported on different proposed projects across the continent and elsewhere, I interacted with a lot of folks that were either before or against these mines. And these are projects that would supply the metals that are the building blocks for lithium-ion batteries and for a whole host of other electronics. And I started to see folks either say, you know, yes, we would love to have this mine here, or no, we don't want this mine here for various reasons, whether that's for indigenous rights reasons or conservation reasons or biodiversity reasons. And when you have the opposition to a lot of these projects and the regulatory, um, I would say, freezing out of Washington, D.C., what I started this question was, okay, where are the building blocks going to come from for this green energy transition? If we think climate change is a serious issue, how are we going to get the materials that are needed to build solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles? And even more importantly, you know, every single gadget and gizmo that we use in our everyday lives now is made with critical minerals. I mean, the way we're all talking right now is through cameras and copper wiring that are powered by all these critical minerals. And so really to me brought up this idea of choice, which is the central theme of the book. What are the choices that we're willing to make if we want this energy transition? If we think climate change is a serious topic that needs to be addressed with carbon mitigating devices, and if we want to have the devices that we use every day, like cell phones and laptops and other things powered by lithium ion batteries, these items don't just grow on trees. And so The book really is an exploration of the people that live on the front lines of this this tension point here. Um, It's not a book for geologists or investors. It's a book for everyday people, because it's a topic that I firmly feel really affects us all. And so that's the core thrust of the book.
1: I would say, though, as a geologist (laughs) and a mining person, like I do think and, and probably there are a lot of folks on right now who are in the industry you absolutely need to read it because Ernest, you, you tell the stories so well, right. Of not just the projects and the politics and the dynamics, but the people, which folks are probably sick of hearing me harp on. We just don't do in our industry. Like there are real people that discover these things and come up with these crazy plans to develop them and figure out how to use this stuff, um, in order to change the world essentially. And like, you've got to read these stories to really understand how connected it is to everyday life. And it's yeah, really that... well-written too. Like it's, a, it's a great
0: Thank read. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it was really important for me, Emily, to to focus on the people that are on all sides of this debate. And mm-hmm. there's not just one side or another side, there's often multiple facets to the same issue here. And so it was important for me to really dive into that and humanize folks here that might be for a project or against a project or might be for a project for reasons, that we might not even think of and I really wanted to bring that to the audience because I think for too long we've been so used to sort of othering people that might be on the other side of an issue and I was fortunate in the reporting for this book to be able to spend a lot of time with a lot of the key players here and help to uh, really tell their stories and I and what I thought was the best unique way possible here That, that that was important for me you know i used to cover the oil and gas industry in my day job before i wrote about critical minerals and i spent a lot of time actually amongst roughnecks and other people in the oil industry i actually spent more than 2 years living in north dakota amongst the oil wells there and i really got to meet a lot of people um that were on all sides of the oil debate but there you know it's it's sort of very stereotypical when you're chronicling oil to find people that are either like really pro oil or really anti oil very few people fall into what i would say um, yeah, a murky middle. What was interesting to me here with the critical minerals debate that I wanted to explore in the war below is that 98, 99% of people you talk to would say, yes, we need critical minerals. Like, yes, we need them for these electronic devices as well as to fight climate change, but we just kind of don't want this mine in our backyard or we just don't want this here. So can't you get it someplace else? So rather than oil or gas, where I had a lot of people say, do we need more oil or gas? Most people I talk to for the book and in my day job say, yes, we need more lithium. We need more copper. And so the tension is around where do we get it? So that, for me, shifted the dynamic of the conversation. And it, was, it made it even more important to focus on the people here that are on the front lines of this choice. So by reading the book, you get to meet people that have uh, very earnest reasons for wanting to build, say, a lithium mine in Nevada. And that tension point comes up against a conservation group that says, no, this is not the space for it. And so as the reader, you get to really walk through both individuals' journeys and discover the complexities of the situation and make for a determination for yourself. I don't really come to any conclusions in the book other than it's important to really be grappling with these choices, which, which I would argue is actually a very strong conclusion here, is that we need to be thinking through the complexities of this situation. Otherwise, we're going to be making the same mistakes that we made 100, 150 years ago when the petroleum-based economy took off. Uh, and so that's... One of the main reasons why it was important for me to really tell the stories of the people here because the people are the central characters here
1: mm-hmm. yeah i think even especially with what mo- some folks might think are really complicated you know like rare earths and things like that that a lot of people might not be aware of um maybe more so now right because there's just been a lot more kind of normal media coverage um but it is complicated and it's very very different from oil and gas i think most folks uh, are surprised at how different the industries are, everything from, you know, the geology you work with to discovery and the way the business in, is set up and financing. So just wondering, like, what what takeaways did you see on that in terms of how different the two sectors are since you spent so much time in both?
0: Sure. I think um, processing is one of the main areas that I see differences there. With crude oil, you know, you put into a refinery, and I think most people would Sort of have a rough understanding that you get jet fuel or kerosene or gasoline out the other end. And with critical minerals, the processing can be very different depending on the critical mineral. So the way you process copper is vastly different than the way you process lithium. And the way that you process rare earths is vastly different than both of those. And those are just three of the many critical minerals that are used to make multiple electronic devices that are out there. And so you just begin to understand the complexity of the supply chain and the sheer need for huge infrastructure increase, which is why you've got efforts by governments in Washington and Brussels and elsewhere to help fund the development of a lot of these, um, not only mining operations, but what they're called midstream or refining operations as well. I mean, Emily, right now the United States, for instance, only has three copper smelters and yeah. and a smelter is sort of, you know, it's, it's a rough analogy, but basically what an oil refinery is, it sort of helps take sort of rock copper and, and to use it into a form that can be, uh, you know, used in our everyday lives. There's only three of those. And that's a huge um, strategic disadvantage, I I would argue for the country right now. But if people don't want a mine in their backyard, they're probably not (laughs) gonna want a copper smelter either. And that's just for (laughs) copper. Um, You know, the way you process lithium can be different depending on how you take it out of the ground. And there's at least two common ways right now to take it out of the ground. Um, The US doesn't have any nickel processing equipment right now. There's some in Canada just north of the border, but it, it does not have any here within the borders right now. There's no a major coal, and coal n- mine.
1: And only one operating nickel mine in the entire yes. U.S.
0: Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so uh, the, the, this is the current reality and this is the current situation right now.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so the, the book goes at, the book explores several projects uh, in the U.S. Southwest and in the, in the Midwest and elsewhere and helps people sort of explore through the stories of these specific people the the complexities of these supply chains right now, including the refining aspect of it. Because this is another thing that we have to be thinking through too.
1: Yeah. And I think that's you hit it on the nail on the head. Like if folks don't want to mine in their backyard, they're really not going to want a smelter. And I I I tried to make this point a few weeks ago. The Department of Energy had a, a critical minerals workshop out in Denver and this big focus with DOE money on trying to like create processing capacity in the US. And it's like if you think it's hard to get a mine permitted and approved in the local community, you know, this is going to be a huge, huge challenge, right? Even with big government support. Um, and yes. I think it's good to to also just tag in on that from a political or geopolitical perspective. Um, the USGS released their 2023 mineral commodities summaries. Big shout out to USGS. We, we love them and their prospector users. Um, but uh, the US is 100% net import reliant for 12 of the 50 individually listed critical minerals and was more than 50% net import reliant for an additional 31 of those commodities. Uh, and, and again, folks who are Already in the industry might be familiar with this issue. But in your view and what you talk about in the book, what are some of the key geopolitical risks if nations like the US remain so reliant on foreign critical mineral supply?
0: Well, we have a great example in the book of China using its control of a key critical mineral as a potential economic weapon, and that's rare earths. And um, the name is sort of a misnomer. They're not actually that rare. What they are is a grouping of 17. Uh, minor metals that are used widely across the global economy, what's actually rare is to find them in large deposits. There is one in California, there's a huge one in China, um, and there's some elsewhere in the world as well, parts of India, parts of the African continent, etc. But while the United States helped invent, or I would say helped prop up the modern rare earth industry in the years after World War II, China the past 20 or 30 years has uh, essentially cornered the market and grown technologically, um, as well as um, in a manufacturing sense around rare earths. And so the United States has basically let that growth happen and let its own domestic industry um, shrink. And in 2010, um, the world sort of got a huge wake up call, I argue in the book, to China using this prowess uh, for its benefit. I mean, it got into a diplomatic dispute with Japan Uh, involving a, a Chinese fisherman and a Japanese Coast Guard vessel. And the net result was that China blocked the exports of rare earths for a few months. And you can imagine a huge manufacturing economy like Japan. That signal definitely was noticed strongly in Tokyo. It also was noticed strongly in Washington, because if you can cut off rare earths exports and use that as an economic weapon, what are the ripple effects that that could have across an economy? You know, rare earths commonly are used to make magnets that turn power into motion. So they're used in electric vehicles because an electric vehicle doesn't have an internal combustion engine, obviously. And so it takes the power from the battery and it transfers that into motion that turns your car's tire. And in a cell phone, the thing that makes your cell phone vibrate is a rare earth magnet. And mm. so when it vibrates, that that's that. And those are two sort of common consumer examples. On a more uh, defense level, they're used in fighter jets. They're used in laser guided missiles, they're used in night vision goggles, they're used in many, many other pieces of weaponry. And so you can see why from a strategic and a geopolitical perspective, whoever controls rare earths really controls a huge part of the global economy. And so being able to use those minerals as an economic weapon, I do argue in the book, has given China a huge strategic advantage. Uh, Emily, we saw also last fall that um, the Chinese government blocked exports of other minor metals, germanium and gallium, and started hinting it could do so for graphite. It also blocked the export of certain rare earth technology. So already we're starting to see China make moves around this critical mineral space. And right now, as you sit here today, the U.S. has this rare earth mine in California, but that mine right now is is struggling to actually resume rare earth processing. It did at one point in the past, but it hasn't for a long time. And so that mine sends a lot of its What's called concentrate, not to get too wonky here, but lightly processed ores to China right now for processing, Um, and so that's a huge strategic flaw in the country's attempt to be energy independent, or at least strive for energy independence. And the book goes through the history of this mine in California, known as the Mountain Pass Mine, all the way from its discovery up into its current ownership today, and explores and explains to the reader why she or he should care, really. And, And and I argue in the book that this. Is extremely important because of all the electronics that we use, many of them contain rare earths.
1: Yeah, and it all happened because the we got uh, a U.S. company got outbid by fifty k, right? Fifty
0: thousand dollars. That was it, right? Fifty thousand exactly.
1: dollars handed our only operating rare earth mine. Not, I mean, the the total bid wasn't just for fifty k, but only fifty. Right, right. The difference, correct? Yeah, yeah. I. uh, for, for me, I remember when all of this happened in, in 2009, 2010, because that was when I was working in Afghanistan, running the mining exploration program over there. And it's part of why we did a bunch of work on a rare earth carbonatite in Southern Helmand um, okay. was because this was was really starting to become of, of importance. You know, folks were already paying attention to it really at that time. But the idea being to start to identify assets in kind of partner countries or, you know, um, yeah, so it was a big, big deal. Lots of generals at the Pentagon being like, "Okay, is lithium a rare earth? What <laughs> are we looking for?" Yeah, um, so it's only done. not
0: technically, but you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Oh, they still still do that. Um, but yeah, and I thought just a little shout out. I know one of the first first uh, quotes that I, I recognized in the book was from uh, Mark or Wade Senti, I forget which one uh, from Advanced yes. Master Labs. One of my my favorite uh rare earth magnet producers down here in Florida. So yeah, we'll shout yep. out to the work that they do. Well, really cool. And I think um, you know, a lot of folks are are probably understanding even that outside of rare earths, this with the electric vehicle market, folks might be paying attention to what's going on with nickel in particular. Yes. <laughs> we brought nickel yeah. up earlier, and I think um even folks that aren't in mining are starting to understand that China has such a dominance in the supply that they can continue to dominate by flooding the market essentially, right? In order to lower the commodity price, at which point they can buy up the mines or, or buy up, um, the product on the market at a much, much lower price. And basically essentially put a lot of companies out of business or keep them really controlled, uh, so beyond rare earths and kind of those, those fancy things.
0: We're seeing it right now, especially in cobalt. Yeah. You know, Roughly a year ago, there was a cobalt project in Idaho here in the United States that was under development. And sure. yeah. the cobalt market was oversupplied. The price is decreasing. Despite all that, a Chinese company that operating in the Congo, DRC, which has massive cobalt supplies, as you know, Emily, decided to increase production, clearly with an economic bent in mind, that further flooded the market, further depressed the price. And mm-hmm. so the company developing that Idaho cobalt project essentially froze development, and this would be a a nice chunk of supply for the domestic United States, and cobalt is key for some electric vehicle batteries as well as other uses across the economy, but now that project is in stasis and is Mm -hmm. not moving forward, partly because of just economics, not even an economic weapon being used uh, in terms of withholding supply, but an economic weapon being used in terms of affecting the price on the global market. Um, sure. And so these are things that affect supply and demand as well. That I argue in the book that people should be thinking through more as well.
1: Yeah, and I think um, one one thing that we pay attention to a lot here at Prospectors, you know, one way that that countries, not just to be specific to the U.S., but since since there is kind of U.S. focus on this, can combat this is to support exploration, right? Support early stage projects so that you have a variety of projects out there. So that the best projects get funded. Right. If you only if if you never put money into that kind of essentially like the startup space <laughs> of the mining industry. Right. If you don't put money into into those early stage startups, you're not going to have unicorns <laughs> hitting, right. hitting. Right. So you've got to create that pipeline. And our data on prospector shows that currently um, 36% of all projects in the US are still in the grassroots or very early stage. Uh, and you know, the book talks about the contentious nature of new projects and concerns that folks have. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about your experience researching the different perspectives around some of them. And what are the challenges that folks really articulated to you beyond just like, I don't want an open pit in my backyard. Like, what did you hear from folks?
0: I think it depends on where in the United States a proposed project is. And I should say to your audience here that I primarily focused on projects in the United States because it was important for me to have readers in the US especially grapple with this idea of choice. I think too often US audiences are just expecting to show up to a store and and get a product without sort of fully thinking through where that product came from. The book does look at projects elsewhere in the world though but most of them are in the United States. And I would say, Emily, I I would put it in my answer into two buckets for you. Um, Projects that are on US federal government land have a vastly different experience than projects that are not. And most of the projects in the United States right now are on U.S. federal land, just because most Western land in the U.S. happens to be controlled in some fashion by the U.S. federal government and also happens to have large mineral deposits. Um, And so I look at the main mine that I, the main proposed mine that I look at for the, I would call it the spine of the narrative, is the Rhyolite Ridge Lithium Project in Nevada, which is about 200 miles north of Las Vegas. And this is a massive deposit of lithium commingled with boron. So you've got two potential revenue streams there, which makes banks and other financiers pretty happy for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, but that giant deposit also is the home to a rare flower found nowhere else on the planet. And so you can just imagine sort of the conversation. Lithium,
1: right, I mean, it's it's rare because that flower specifically... Correct. Correct.
0: You have the, the deposit liquid. and you've got sort yeah. of the flower that, that lives on the land right above it and nowhere else on the planet. And yeah. so that sparked conversations right away with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, that, that, you know, and I chronicle this in the narrative, sort of explores how best to save that flower. At the same time, you've got other U.S. federal officials eager to help support the lithium deposit uh, and have it being be developed really for use to fight climate change. Um, And so there you've got sort of one main actor with sort of many different offshoots, but basically the U.S. federal government. I also chronicle a proposed mine in North Carolina, which is just outside Charlotte. And this mine basically requires the company to buy up pieces of land, almost sort of like how oil companies have to do nowadays Mm -hmm. uh, when they go to a new place. You know, when I lived in North Dakota, I saw this quite frequently, oil companies, landmen coming around and, and sort of buying up mineral rights or actual land rights. Uh, to parcels. And so it requires a methodical, structured approach to talk to several hundred landowners and convince them all to sell. Um, and so that is a different approach there. And both of these companies I've just described are startups, are junior minor companies, in, in the definition, Emily, that, that you and Prospector would have here. Um, but it requires a sort of a different approach on both sides. and And the narrative sort of goes through their particular journeys. Yeah,
1: and that's Piedmont, right? Is yes. for folks to know Piedmont Lithium. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, and I, I find it so interesting that you you talk about like the different reactions in, in different parts of the world and certainly, you know, the different stages, because as we were chatting about, as folks were joining, you and I both come from Maine. And despite the fact that folks in Maine love renewable energy and are typically really hugely supportive of anything that's positive for the environment, there is no way I can ever imagine like a lithium mine owning uh, opening up in Maine, right? And and right. So it's this struggle that um, I know I have these talks with, with my friends and family back home, right? Between that, the conservation environmentalists and kind of the need to develop resources. And it's hard sometimes not to just read it as hypocrisy Right, I mean, for me, it's like, okay, so you'd rather have it be in the Congo, right? You'd rather have all of these folks that you're you're worried about child labor and environmental crises and stuff. If it's over there, that's fine, as long as I can plug my EV in at my house, right? Um, right. And I, it's certainly not a positive place to come from when you're like you're being a hypocrite, <laughs> right? So, so I wonder, um, you know, if you have any thoughts though on how do folks. How, how do you think there can be some kind of reconciliation around that? How do we better navigate these questions of which places are are really too sacred to develop, yeah. right? And, and for very good reasons in many cases, right? Of course. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that discussion.
0: Yeah. I, I really focused hard here on the narrative and, and bringing this, um, bring the reader along to, to these really complex choices. I, I, very much agree you're referencing artisanal mining in the DRC mm-hmm. where oftentimes children as young as six or seven can be part of the supply chain and literally take pickaxe and shovel and take rock out of the ground containing cobalt and that cobalt would go through a processing network that would be very hard to trace so you mm-hmm. don't know if the device you bought came from cobalt in the DRC and it can be extremely um cumbersome and laborious to track that cobalt um yeah. And um, I'm not necessarily saying it's a a black as white, but it's not that black and white. Like if we don't have more cobalt mining in the United States, are we saying we want more children mining in the DRC? I mean, I don't necessarily think it's that direct, but what I really strove to do here with the narrative is to say to the reader that unless we actually want to have more production here domestically, or at least have the conversation about where we want to get it, then we have to be comfortable with the reality that there are places in the world where, these critical minerals are going to be produced at ESG standards that Mm. might cause us to blush or might cause us to recoil. And if we're not really comfortable with that reality, then we have to be grappling with the hard choices of where here in the United States or North America, we are comfortable with allowing these mining operations to move forward and at what standards, you know, one chapter in the book, I explore the history of Irma, the initiative for responsible mining assurance. And that's a mining certification standard organization. And it was important for me to explore it because it has a unique backstory. It was started in part by the former CEO of Tiffany, who, you know, the the iconic jewelry company. Mm -hmm. And he realized when he was running Tiffany that he knew a lot about jewelry for obvious reasons, but he was not a mining engineer. Uh, he was not a mining CEO. He knew nothing about the best ways to mine, but he did know that he had to continue to buy gold and copper and platinum and many other metals out there to keep selling engagement rings and watches, etc. cetera. And so he got together with some NGOs and they basically said, How can we create an organization that sets the standards for the best ways to mine? And yeah. they pulled together uh, indigenous groups, labor unions, mining companies, their investors, um, uh, local rights advocates. Uh, and mining industry's customers. And they put them all in the same room and they said, okay, let's get together and figure out how best to create standards for a mine. And Emily, I got to tell you, like, if that sounds like a Molly Crude that would better eat at <laughs> each other's throats, like, when I first heard about this, I was like, there's no way these people would ever get yeah. together. But fast forward about a decade, and indeed they did. They did find a way, and I chronicle this in, in this chapter, to form these standards for how they feel like a mine should best operate. And this has got attention from Microsoft, from Ford, from BMW, from other manufacturers across the globe that are saying increasingly they'll only buy metals from Irma audited mines. Yeah. And an Irma audit is not necessarily designed to say yes or no to a mine, but to bring transparency so that more people know how much water your mine uses. Do you pay your people a living wage? you know What are the safety standards you have in place in case there's an accident, things like this nature. So to bring transparency, because if we need more mines, if we need more critical minerals, then we need to be having a discussion about what are the best ways we can mine. And are there some places where we should mine? But at places where we should be mining, what are the standards in place? And so I think for me, it was important to bring that to the reader here as part of the narrative, um, because just saying yes or no to something sort of ignores the fact that life is full of greys.
1: no. A hundred percent. And I think that's where, again, I'm so excited that you wrote this book because it's really only once folks start to get into the grays and hear the different perspectives, right, and the the different, you know, the detail, right? You really have to understand the detail. You can't just, like I was saying, call people hypocrites or if it, if it can't be grown, it must be mine, therefore you should love <laughs> us, right? I mean, it always reminds me a little bit, I don't know if you ever saw these growing up in Maine, but um, forestry industry is of course huge. And folks used to have these bumper stickers that, like, if you don't like logging, um, good luck without your toilet paper. Oh, the toilet paper, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. bumper stickers everywhere for a few years. And it's like, OK, point taken, right? But <laughs> I don't know if it really moves the needle very far. You know, uh, There are like, some
0: people who would use leaves. So. Right,
1: exactly. You know,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> so, um, people will get very ingenious. And a yeah. shout out, uh, we just did actually have Amy um, from Irma on our podcast oh, so just uh, dropped the link in that in the chat if anyone wants to go listen to that huge huge fan of what they've done and agree my my thing with irma in particular is there's all this chatter in the industry about we need more different standards and it's like no there is one where they've already like gotten everyone around the table and like created this great construct like let's just get behind it you know and like use that yeah. as a, as a mechanism
0: and what what was key for me there with Irma, to your point, Emily, there are a lot of standards out there right now. Um, what was so key for me about telling their story is that we've got a lot of manufacturers that are mm-hmm. saying Irma is the one for us. So people that are actually building the products that you and I buy are increasingly yeah. saying that we want Irma-certified metals to build our products. Yeah. And I think we're going to get to a point, my theory, is that we'll get to a point where increasingly a consumer, if you buy an electric vehicle, is going to want to know what is the total greenhouse gas emissions to produce and ship this vehicle to the showroom floor? Because what's the metric you look at right now for an internal combustion engine? It's miles per gallon. Mm -hmm. Um, I think customers are going to increasingly know, hey, like I'm not emitting greenhouse gas emissions by buying this EV, but did the lithium come from Northern Chile uh, out of a big up, you know, evaporation pond facility there did it get shipped to the pacific coast did it get shipped across the pacific ocean to get processed in china then put into a cathode then put into a battery pack then right. get shipped back across the pacific ocean to an ev plant and say nevada before mm-hmm. it was shipped to say you in florida emily or yeah. our families in maine uh, yeah. you know, just think of that long circuitous you know route there i think increasingly consumers are going to want to know hey if if going green is my way to help save the planet i want to make sure that this product actually is green when i buy it
1: and the one of the biggest contributors to the carbon footprint of of mine materials is the logistics right it's the transportation and the closer you can have processing to the point of extraction the less carbon you're emitting by moving low grade ore from one place to another and then moving kind of better green material from one place to another right i mean it's it's a huge part of, of kind of where that footprint comes from. And I wonder if this might be
0: a good opportunity for you to tee up your leaf blower story. I was just gonna actually bring that up here, yeah, you know? too often, um, when I started writing this, people would talk about electric vehicles, which can be somewhat a polarizing topic or even just sort of an, a topic out of economic reach for many people, um, just given the, the cost right now. For me, it was important to talk about all the devices that we use every day that are not electric vehicles but are still powered by critical minerals and so uh, a year or two ago you know i got a house and decided to go all electric on the lawn care so i got an electric lawn mower an electric weed whacker and an electric leaf blower mm-hmm. and um you know i mean regular internal combustion engine powered leaf blowers are two-stroke engines they're horrible for the environment they emit all this sort of noxious uh pollutants that contribute to greenhouse gas emissions and so a lot of electric leap blower a lot of leaf blowers now are going electric, but that took me down this rabbit hole, especially as I was writing this book about, okay, where did all the critical minerals come from that are inside this lithium ion battery that are powering this leaf blower? And I got to tell you, Emily, like I got a lot of resources at my disposal, especially in my day job, and I couldn't figure out where they came from. You know, I did no clue if the lithium took that long route I just described to you. I couldn't tell if the nickel came from Indonesia, where mm-hmm. like, Whole rainforests have been dug up to extract nickel. I couldn't figure out if the copper came from Peru, where we've had a lot of farmers bitterly complain that the copper mining trucks kick up dirt that and dust that pollutes their crops and makes their livelihoods untenable. Um, I couldn't figure out any of these things. Um, And so that's just for one lowly leaf blower. Now magnify that across the millions and billions of electronic devices we use every single day. And it really helps put in context that this situation is about so much more than electric vehicles.
1: Yeah. No, it's so true. And I think, you know, to your point, I don't think folks understand outside maybe of the industry how many steps um, go into turning a rock that comes out of the ground into something that you use that goes into your leaf blower or even like your makeup or, you know, like. It's really just about anything that you use. And I always say, and I can see we've got some comments in the chat about like the lack of, you know, the need for education in in schools about this topic and everything and geosciences in particular, in my opinion, as a geologist. But I'm like, we as a nation need to get back to like the Mr. Rogers, like, do you remember those episodes where he would like go into the factory and like show you how crayons got made? (laughs) Like, I think in general... Right. Yeah. we kind of like totally gotten disconnected from just what it looks like. And that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book where the parts where you actually went into the mines or the plants and like you talked about kind of what the equipment looks like, what it feels like to be standing in this big open pit mine. Like, cause again, I think folks don't even kind of understand what it takes to do that. And it is so different from oil and gas, right? I mean, oil and gas, my 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 friends in that industry are gonna, you know, kick me under the table for this. But like basically you stick a straw in the ground and oil comes out, right?
0: <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: you know, so it's the, the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, opening scene. But you know, mining, it's it's really complicated to kind of break things down and then put them back together into something that folks use. Yeah. Um,
0: and I was really um uh, at pains in the book, also to tell it to your point, Emily, a story of an active mine. So several mm-hmm. of the chapters are about proposed projects, but one chapter dives into the Morenci mine in Arizona, which is operated by Freeport-McMoRan. It's the largest mine of any metal on the North American continent, and so taking a visit there and seeing the site uh, really helped tell the story of what a modern mine looks like. What does yeah. it look like to have a company that has earned the social license to operate uh, a large mine? and has been active for more than a century and produces gargantuan amounts of the copper used in the United States and the world every single day. What does that look like? Mm-hmm. So rather than just constantly showing the reader the tension around proposed projects, is what does it actually look like to operate a mine of the 21st century? And so you get to, as you read that chapter, explore what it's like to see not only the open mining pits, but also the processing facilities, also the tailing dam facilities, um, and the facilities that make copper cathode. Um, And so it was important for me to show that to the reader so that she or he really gets a sense of, as you say, the many, many moving parts that go into getting the copper wiring that goes into your iPhone charger.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and I don't know, you know, if any of the folks listening haven't been able to go to a mine, I really encourage you to to look for a mine tour near you or a mining museum. And Jess Scanlon um, on the Prospector team is a huge proponent of those because, again, I think until you see it, it's just really hard to understand what it looks yeah. like and what it feels like on both sides, where you can also better understand the concerns that people have, right? Just when you when you do see dust or hear the noise and all of that stuff, right? It's again, we're always more um, open to discussion when we see the reality
0: of something. No. Right. And you realize there's human beings on all sides of this issue, right? it's it's, you know, it's 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 not just sort of sort of nameless, faceless thing. you know, there are human beings on all sides of these issues,
1: yeah, absolutely. And on that we were we were talking quite a bit about the the traceability. Um, do you think that that's going to become, you know, you talked about the fact that consumers are gonna be more and more concerned about it? do you think that that will eventually shift into people wanting things closer to home? You know what I mean? Or how connected do you think those, will it ever get to that point?
0: I think increasingly consumers are gonna move in that direction. I, I think um, a good analog is the clothing industry. Um, people love brands. You know, I'm I'm in, in honor of Maine, I'm wearing L.L. Bean. Um, And uh, we saw a few years ago that another company um, had sourced a lot of its clothing from Bangladesh, but then Mm -hmm. it came out that there was a large fire in this um, garment facility and a lot of people were killed. And so I think people that bought from this particular brand were shocked to know that the high-end clothing that they bought was made in a facility with atrocious safety conditions where the workers were paid not a living wage and Some of them ended up dying in these atrocious conditions and so you're starting to see some change i think in the clothing industry with people sort of insisting on better standards for the clothing that they buy you know and and so they're starting to say we're not going to buy a t-shirt in a sweatshop Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's not a complete 180 like i think a lot still has to change but i think you're starting to see it slowly in the clothing industry move in that direction and i think you'll slowly start to see it move in that direction for the mining industry as well, especially as the energy transition accelerates. Um, and mm-hmm. it is accelerating. You know, I think a lot of folks the past few weeks have been looking at lithium prices and some people have been forecasting the death of the lithium industry. You know, I mean, <laughs> this this happens at a commodity cycle, right? I mean, things go up yeah. and things come down. Yeah. It's, it's a reality. But what we do know is the demand projections just for lithium are skyrocketing yeah. even just this year, let alone the next 10 or 15 years. And that's just lithium. And, and so I think increasingly consumers are going to want to know that they're buying a product that is ethically sourced and things like Irma and other certification schemas, I think will help get them there. Um, and I think people are also going to have to think through what are the prices we're willing to pay? You know, are we willing to pay more for metals produced at ESG standards that we might consider important to us? Or are we yeah. comfortable buying sort of quote unquote, cheap metals? not really caring about where they come from Th- these are part of sort of the tough choices that i really hope the book sparks because i think we're not having these discussions right now yeah. and i i argue that we should be
1: yeah i equate it to like the farmer's market effect
0: right sure. like, yep.
1: <laughs> at what point you know do you want your your local nickel mine down the you want to be buying direct from the nickel mine down the road? <laughs> no, because you know the the miners that work there right uh you know, I was just... there pesticide
0: used, exactly. exactly. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah, like I've way overpaid for so much honey and fruit and vegetables because it's like, oh, you know, you're at the farmer's market, drink too exactly. much ice coffee, right? I'm um, with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I know this is a bit of a to kind of go from like that super local focus and zoom out a little bit. One thing I forgot to mention earlier was I love like the title of the book, you know, the war below, and and there's a lot throughout the chapters about China in particular, but not just China, but like the geopolitical aspect of this. And, you know, do you think that we really are like in a war <laughs> or a battle, you know, to with other countries or how would you frame that in terms of this, like, you know, competition
0: for these resources? Yeah, sure, I, I think there's conflict or tension across various parties throughout the book. So you've got certainly the folks that are supporting mining projects or folks that are against them, And that's baked into every chapter. You have the geopolitical conflict here. You -hmm. have the conflict in Washington DC and in Brussels among regulators. Um, And then you have the tension between consumers and what are the standards that they're willing to take or willing to accept for products that are out there. And so for me, that was the broader tension when you mm-hmm. put all those together here, I mean, yes, there is uh, a geopolitical tension going on right now between Washington and Beijing over the sourcing of these critical minerals. Um, but there's also a tension on whether we should mine more here in the United States or not. Um, and yeah. so for me, that was that was the central idea here, the central tension that I'm really tapping into. Um, and the title, obviously, you know, refers to mineral assets being under the ground, um, mm-hmm. hence the below portion there. Um, but but that's that's the broader tension. Um, that is happening right now. And and I argue in the book that if we're not going to have these discussions, then we have to be comfortable in some sense, losing the war right. um, and and letting places that we'll never visit or never see um, produce the building blocks for our everyday lives. It's standards that we might not accept. Mm-hmm. And if we're not going to have a debate about that conflict, about that war, then we have to be okay with that. And so for me, that's another one of the tension points here as well. Um, and I think by humanizing this, it helps make it helps make the topic very accessible for the average reader here, and that really was my target audience here—the everyday person on the street. Because I really feel that this is a topic that really affects us all, and we can't just put our heads in the sand anymore; otherwise, we're going to lose this war.
1: Yeah, no, I, I can't agree. Can't agree more. Um... And I think on that it's it's about well we've already gone for 45 minutes so I'll I'll switch over to some of the questions that folks have been sending in and and please if you've got questions or comments shoot those in and, and we can chat about them um you know one point that Ken made uh, that I'd love to get your thoughts on is like sure. who out there can or would speak positively about the industry if we do it ourselves it just sounds like we're being mm-hmm. like, you know big tobacco as he points out um you know but like for someone like yourself who's kind of spent an extended time immersed in the industry but you're not really from the industry like who do you think should be championing this or how do we do a better job of enlisting allies maybe in order to be champions for for the industry and the right way to do it
0: i guess sort of two thoughts to that emily um um i i always at pains here to as best i can as best i knew how to write a book that Uh, was fair to all sides that really, you know, shot down the middle that that said, Mm -hmm. you know, these are complex areas. And the best way that I know how to bring them to the audience um, is to be as fair and balanced as I I can strive to be here. And so I was really Mm -hmm. um, proud of the way that the book came out and really proud of the way that it's being received by yourselves and others, um, including in the conservation and environmental communities. So, So that was really, really important to me to not say this person's a villain and this person's a hero, but to really sort of paint the, the landscape here and to say you as the reader decide for yourself um, where you fall on these complex issues. That was the best way I knew how. Because to Ken's point, I mean, these are wildly complex issues that I think too often people have vilified one side or the other or a third or fourth side without sort of fully thinking through the, complexity, the complexities um that that really are baked into all sides of this issue. So so that was a core focus of mine, if you forgive the pun uh, here in the book. um, um w- what I would say though, is is that I think increasingly there are realizations by the average consumer that um we're gonna need more metals. and so they they want to know more. There's a hunger for more information about how these metals are produced. And there's not that much information out there available, say, on the world wide Web or elsewhere to actually learn more. Um, if you are just sort of an average, let's just say, I don't know, you're somebody in their twenties who is just sort of very curious about where copper comes from. Um, yeah. and, and so, um, I think more information out there would help people understand a bit more about where the building blocks come from for stuff they use every single day. Um, mm-hmm. and I really strove to do that here with the book, but I definitely saw a lot of people, express sort of confusion or scratching their heads around okay well where exactly does nickel come from or who produces a lot of the rare earths out there what is a rare earth you know um or even we were joking earlier that people think lithium is a rare earth i mean it's it's not but you know we know what they mean when they say rare earths um so i think sort of a broader understanding of the complexities of the supply chain uh does help um and you know i mean there have been like any industry mistakes and the book does explore mistakes that the mining industry has made. I mean, there's no way around that. Um, But I think more education about the mining supply chain can only help people further understand how complex this is and how important it is.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you have any um, thoughts or feedback on, you know, a lot of times folks in the industry are reticent to share a lot of information because the concern is, hey, if we put more out about what we're doing, we're just gonna get protesters, right? Folks are just Mm -hmm. gonna try to shut it down. And a lot of folks, I'm I'm not knocking anybody in particular on the call, but like, you know, can be a little bit hesitant to engage for that reason. And in your reporting, have you seen maybe a better way or some of the good solutions, you know, some of the examples you've seen in the book of, of groups that have done a good job of engaging and making sure to balance concerns in terms of how they're communicating?
0: So, um, I, I would say it probably gets back to transparency and helping people understand more about what goes on in the metaphorical mind next door. Um, and like a great example, that is a sad example is the Brumadino tailings collapse in Mm -hmm. Brazil about five years ago. Uh, and this was uh, a tailings dam that was known to have structural flaws that wasn't communicated to the neighbors. Yeah. Um, wasn't communicated to most of the staff. And what you had was this giant tailing stand collapse. And this was not at a upstart junior miner. This right. was at an established international mining company that's been around for a very long time that has a very large balance sheet. And so that unfortunately reinforced the stereotype that the mining industry is insular, that it does nothing to actually communicate and that it, in this specific instance did not communicate life sa- potentially life-saving information to mm-hmm. its core constituencies. Now, I'll grant you that's one example uh, among many, many large mining companies that are out there. But, you know, I mean, I think sharing more information with not only physical neighbors, but communities, um, whether that's people physically nearby or investors or other stakeholders, can only further help to spread not only critical information, but just goodwill out there. Um, And so uh, as I talk to local communities time and time again, I mean, this request for information was um, a a core part of what they brought to me.
1: Yeah, and I think it's when when I chat with folks, you know, over a bourbon, it's like, you know, we can't expect people to just magically give us a better reputation if we haven't done the hard work of actually doing better. Like, it sounds really simple, but like, if we want people to view us differently, we have to act differently, (laughs) which means, you know, it's, you've got to kind of break outside the box of the normal, whatever the current, you know, kind of structure and policy is.
0: And, and there's no way around the fact that, you know, I mean, I'm preaching literally to the choir here, but mining is a physically intense, dangerous industry. Um, and, and there's just no way around that fact.
1: Yeah. Well, we've got a question or a comment from from Mitchell. The elusive prize was mentioned in your book referencing Energy X in particular. DLE has been seen as a game changer and an important aspect of lessening lithium costs and speeding up the process. How do you see this playing out within North America where brine grades are marginal compared to what we see in South America? Great question, Mitchell.
0: Yeah. yeah, great question, Mitchell. Um, I have a, a, a an up-to-date answer for you. Uh, last week, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas uh, for an Arkansas lithium summit. Uh, I had started covering lithium six years ago, and I would have never expected I would ever go to a lithium conference in Arkansas. And yet, <laughs> there was 700 people there for a sold out wow. lithium conference. The fire marshal had to turn people away.
1: That's amazing.
0: It was amazing. Yes. And so I think that that's just one state. Granted, it sits on top of the smack over, which is teeming with lithium. And so the potential there to use direct lithium extraction is huge. The, you know, certainly fulcrum on which that whole plan, um, you know, pivots is indeed can DLE go commercial without the use of evaporation bonds? I think we're going to start to see some success stories perhaps later this year, maybe next year, depending on how various tech deployments play out. Um, But you've got companies like ExxonMobil investing more than $100 million into the space, Mm -hmm. Albemarle, um, Lilac, uh, which recently got more money from uh, some of its key investors as part of a Series C. Um, And those are just a few examples. You mentioned EnergyX. It has the support of General Motors as well as other investors, and it is actively looking across both North and South America. So in North America, specifically to your question, Mitchell, there's projects in not only Arkansas, but in Utah, in California, and elsewhere that are very appealing for their brine deposits. And then I think you get into the question of produced water, which is really interesting to explore. Could the oil and gas industry use the water streams that come mm-hmm. up with oil now? And instead of paying to dispose of that, which is a basically a cost center right now, could they turn that into a profit center if they can filter lithium from that and would various DLE technologies allow them to filter that lithium at lower percentages, far lower percentages than say in Chile or Argentina? I think the technology is uh, still exploring that right now. But if the potential could be unlocked there, then you can just imagine the sheer spike in domestic U.S. lithium production.
1: Yeah, no, that would be that would be amazing. And I know from my folks in the oil and gas industry that would be a huge benefit if they can. Yeah anything out of that
0: produced nobody wants to pay for uh, water disposal in the oil and gas industry i
1: never had i never understood until a friend of mine taylor mcconnell was dealing with those issues where for a while there it would get backed up right and they literally couldn't dispose of it and it would back up the whole industry so um yeah well i'm i'm getting a prodding from jess here that uh folks that listen to our podcast on the rocks know that our last question is always for our guests if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the mining industry just overnight so you don't have to deal with any of the complaining, any of the bureaucracy, um, what would you change about the industry? And folks, we'd love to hear your answers, too.
0: Mm. Um, gosh, that's wow. Um... No pressure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> You know, People um, buy your book, right? Every person in the industry would run out and buy The War Below. If that's what well, yeah. I thinking.
0: mean, certainly, yes. Uh, you know, that's that's I would highly recommend that everyone buy the book, but uh, but 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 yes, actually, I, I would say that. But um, I, I would say that broadly, I think the average consumer and the mining industry need to have a conversation about the choices that you know need to be made. And I think that's so important. And that's the main message of my book here is choice. You know, I, if I've learned one thing in writing a book, Emily, and this is my first book, it's you get to ask your audience one question. And the question I'm putting to the audience here is what are the choices you're willing to make? And I would say that the mining industry needs to be having that conversation with its customers, with its consumers that are out there. And, And sort of this dialogue has to happen and it's happening to a certain extent right now, but it's not happening on a broad level. It's what are the choices the mining industry um expects from its consumers, from everyday citizens, from manufacturers. and and what about the flip side of that? What do consumers and manufacturers expect from the mining industry? And so I would say that that has to be happening a lot more now. it's It's not happening. And you know, I, I referenced my past coverage of oil and gas. you know, when oil and gas started revolutionizing revolutionizing the global economy about one hundred and fifty years ago, You know, we didn't really think through some of the tough choices then. And what did we get? We got climate change. We got armed conflict about crude oil. We got a cartel that controls a huge portion of the world's oil production. And if we're not careful, we're going to be making the same mistakes that were made back then. And already we're starting to see people talk about maybe we could have a lithium OPEC. Several Mm -hmm. presidents in South America are talking about that. We've had some analysts warn that we could actually see wars over copper. Which sounds yeah. sort of mind-boggling when you think about it, but like this is what leading analysts have warned could be uh, a, a friction point in the 21st century. And mm-hmm. so I would say that one main thing that I really would like to see more broadly is just this broader dialogue among everyone who interfaces with the mining industry. Which, spoiler alert, is all of us. Yeah. And and to say, okay, wh- where do, wh- what are the choices that we're willing to make here? Because if we don't think through these choices, then we have to be comfortable with the consequences of our inaction. And I really don't think anybody will want that.
1: Yeah. Lack of a decision is in fact a decision.
0: decision. Yes. (laughs) yeah,
1: Right. uh, Yeah. And I, I think to your point, this it's also something that I think within the industry, we, as an industry need to start thinking about the choices that we need to make, right. About how we're willing to do things differently in order to to be a part of this future, right? And and how we can contribute to that. So yes. absolutely love that. I think, you know, making the point that this is a choice and everybody has a responsibility to engage on it, not just abdicate uh, that discussion and that decision to other folks. Yes. We're all in this together. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again, Ernest, for joining us. Really appreciate it. I know you're super busy. Uh, with the book launch and the tour and congratulations on everything. And again, folks, if you if you haven't bought it yet, get out there and get the war below. And we look forward to having you back on sometime soon.
0: Anytime, Emily. Thank you so much for uh, the great conversation and to be with your audiences and look forward to future talks. Awesome. Thanks, everyone.
1: Have a great rest of the day.
0: Thanks, everyone. Have a good